Hey, Rockheads. Before we get started today, I want to let you know about an opportunity to get face-to-face with some of your favorite .NET rock stars at Dev Intersection, happening this October from the 25th through the 28th at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. One all-day workshop in particular is called Making the Jump to ES6 in TypeScript, with John Papa and Dan Walleen. That happens all day Monday. Now, this is a hands-on workshop, so you bring your own laptop. You'll learn how to convert ES6 and TypeScript to ES5 using tools like Gulp and TSC so that it can run in any browser. You'll learn about modules, classes, maps and sets, destructors, types, interfaces, generics, and many more language features. And if you register for a workshop package before August 3rd, you'll get your choice of a Microsoft Band 2, a Surface 3, or an Xbox One. Plus, you'll save nearly a grand. Hey, get it? A grand. So register now. Check it out at devintersection.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1350, with guest Uncle Bob Martin. Recorded Thursday, September 8th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Richard, you're in your office. I'm more in my office. Bit by bit, more in my office. It's an endless, you know, people talk to me on Twitter about this. It's like, is your office done? I'm like, what is done exactly? But you sound a lot better to me now than you did, than you have in the last year. Why is yeah. that? Well, I'm, I am down in the office for starters. So we've put more baffling in, like the audio quality is better. The wiring's better. There's less of an echo chamber. And at, you're hearing me over the telephone line. So the way we patch each other together, up until now, I've been routing through Skype. Right. Be, just because that was the only thing that worked in that location. We had all kinds of phone problems. So And Skype calling a regular phone line doesn't sound all that good. No, it's kind of crappy. Yeah. So that's one less, one less problem eliminated, finally, after months and months and months. Well, I have a surprise for you, my friend. Awesome. An actual framework piece for Better Know Framework. Well, this is weird. Framework on framework. Who would have thought such a thing? I know. I was <laughs> almost ready to call it Better Know an Internet. <laughs> so, what have you got? Well, this one actually came as a suggestion via Twitter. Okay. And uh, it's the dynamic method class. So, go to 1350.pwop.me. Now, I haven't used this, but here's what it says, and there's a whole bunch of stuff attached to it. You can use the dynamic method class to generate and execute a method at runtime without having to generate a dynamic assembly and a dynamic type to contain the method. The executable code created by the just-in-time compiler is reclaimed when the dynamic method object is reclaimed. So, dynamic methods are the most efficient way to generate and execute small amounts of code. Wow, this really is a piece of the framework. I'm just kind of gobsmacked, actually. <laughs> it really is. It's been a while. And I'm interested to know, because this is in system reflection emit dynamic oh, method, but it isn't, doesn't really sound like reflection to me. No, it doesn't. Not at all. And I'm wondering, maybe some alert listener can uh, fill us in as to, you know, where and when this came about and... Is it, does it use Roslyn? Does it not use Roslyn? Is it just using the DLR? What's going on here? My hunch is that it's a DLR thing, but I haven't uh, had the time to dive into it. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear a scenario for yeah, this. Me too. I mean, I do notice that there's F sharp samples for it too. So, you know, the, it's clearly they're building more syntax and, and so forth around it. It's, it's modern, but yeah, I'd like to see an implementation, somebody doing something cool with it. Yeah. So, Very uh, interesting, dude. Yeah. So, uh, send, if you have more information, send it to us. Yeah. And that's what I got, Richard. Who's talking to us today? Grabbed a comment off of show 1094, which we did with one Uncle Bob. And we talked about craftsmanship in that show. And it, of course, as always, stimulated a huge amount of conversation. 60 comments, something like that. Yeah. Uh, all over the spectrum, too, in conversation, too. I grabbed this particular one, and there was a bunch of choices, let me tell you. There's so much good stuff to talk about here. I've read a few in the past already. Uh, this particular comment's from Jason K, and it's referencing the idea that, you know, we need to become more of a profession, and sooner or later there's going to be a, a disastrous event. I always thought it was going to be Y2K. Here's Jason's thought. I honestly believe that the collapse event that triggers a software development practice creation will come about from the Internet of Things movement. Hmm. At some point, the world is going to have enough end users of the Internet of Things devices and services that we will reach a critical mass that's needed for this to happen. All you'd need then is for one or more serious or large-scale events to happen that negatively affect enormous numbers of end users. Like, what if some pack of hackers took over everybody's car that was now an Internet of Thing? That would, yeah. be, that would be exciting. Yeah. I could see web-controlled outlets getting hacked, leading to house fires. Just think of those same hackers disabled web-controlled smoke alarms in the house. Love it. Could people die as a result? How about a thermostat that gets hacked and results in your furnace not turning on during cold weathers and causes pipes to freeze in your house? This is our new duck and cover. There you go. <laughs> right, Bob? Doesn't it sound like it? It's like this 50s wonderful. nuclear mania. I, I went immediately to killing people with cars. He's talking about turning off the furnace. Yeah. Uh, if enough yeah. of these events happen, especially if a human life was taken, then there'd surely be a public outcry that leads to some sort of software development guild creation. I guess the next question would be whether we create this guild ourselves voluntarily or are forced by governments to do so. Well, that's not a talking point, Jason. I, no. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. Let, let, let's spend another hour on that, I think. Yeah. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for your comment at .NET Rocks Mug. It's on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks Mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media. Because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We blow up furnaces with him. Nice. So... <laughs> So let me formally introduce Uncle Bob. Robert C. Martin has been a software professional since 1970 and an international software consultant since 1990. In the last 40 or more years, he has worked in various capacities on literally hundreds of software projects. In 2001, he initiated the meeting of the group that created Agile Software Development from Extreme Programming Techniques and served as the first chairman of the Agile Alliance. He's also a leading member of the worldwide software craftsmanship movement, Clean Code. Welcome, Bob. And man, I just got to say that, what does it take for people to stop looking for the worst case scenario? I mean, healthcare.gov, wasn't that enough? <laughs> and healthcare.gov meant people couldn't get insurance. People had to pay real money. It was real suffering. And then now people are like, oh, but now, you know, we got to wait until the big catastrophe happens. That, that was, that was it. So I, as, as I was listening to that one, I was thinking, gosh, I, 
what mischief could you create by uh, by getting into the Internet of Things? Like, what if what if you just turned off everybody's refrigerators for three hours? <laughs> yeah. And you just did that every day, and no one would notice. Right. Sure. <laughs> like, they, they were, they were dying home. of food just poisoning. everybody's food. <laughs> Turn this off. is the new communist plot. It's the new fluoride. Yeah, and there's an easy way to vaccinate yourself against that. Don't connect your fridge to the frickin' internet. <laughs> How do you prevent it? It's all Wi-Fi. Yeah. It's always connected. Everything is always connected. There is no reason my fridge needs an IP address. I'm sorry, people. You love to have your fantasies about geekdom in your house, but there is absolutely no... And Richard and I disagree about this. Well, he, I don't he want to disagree with fridge. you about this because you're wrong, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I still like you as a friend, even though you're wrong. <laughs> so very, very wrong. Well, anyway, so what do you think it'll take? Seriously. Uh, and and isn't healthcare.gov enough? Apparently well, clearly not. Clearly it wasn't enough. Uh, it came close. And uh, I, I believe there was serious thought given to the creation of a cabinet-level position, the yeah. uh, uh, software administrator of the United States. I think we talked about healthcare.gov a couple of years ago. When, yeah, we you know, did. Right after the debacle happened. Just because it was such low hanging fruit, but other, other catastrophes, many catastrophes have happened since then, right? You have the, in the IOT thing, that, uh, truck that got hacked and, uh, people were able to actually take control of it and turn it off, stop it. And, uh, the the wired story on the Grand Cherokee and the Jeep, yeah. Right. And how about the guy who hacked into an airplane while he was on the plane through the entertainment system and actually Uh, got control of it? Well, I, got, I, I think that was more myth than reality. Yeah, possibly. But the day is coming. Yeah, I, I, I think of the series. There was two books made by a guy named Daniel Juarez called Damon and Freedom. And they, they're back in like 2009, 2010. And they totally got into this idea that I think would be the thing that would really cross the line. A group of hackers taking control of things like airplanes and cars and using them as weapons. Like, I... I hate to use the 9-11 reference because it's just kind of gauche, really, but if you actually had, you know, a terrorist assault that took advantage of software exploits, you know, that created a clear and present danger, I think that'd be a pretty strong incentive. Mm. Well, that certainly would. Think, think of the um, the Volkswagen fiasco. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Where, where there was actually um, ill intent by a major corporation to uh, defraud the the environmental protection agency who knew that would never people. happen how no, no of corporations not. are people they're not evil corp what is wrong? <laughs> i'm so disillusioned uh, no, let's not get into citizens united all of a sudden uh, yeah, that was at a German company to boot, right? Right. Like, yeah, German company to boot. Although the American CEO of uh, v- of um, VW America testified before Congress that it was just a couple of software developers who did this for whatever reason. Right. Yeah. But so now, now software developers have been raised to the level of villains hmm. before Congress. <laughs> yeah. 
On the other hand, you could totally see how you would get here, you know, less with, this was not an order on high from the head of VW saying, thou shalt conceal diesel emissions. It, you could see it building up where they're building the test software to try and figure out what the emission levels are and trying to optimize it. And they, the manager who doesn't really understand program just keeps hitting them over the head with a stick saying, no, it's got to be better than that, better than that. And sooner or later, some frustrated dev writes a thing that lies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He goes, look, I can make it say that. We just have to do it legitimately. And he's like, no, no, that gets me my promotion. Move it up. And then, and then that's a great have, demo. Skip it. Yeah, you yeah. have people who who turn a blind eye, right? Yeah. I, and I, most I developers are sitting at their desks dev- going, they shipped that. How yeah, they, they ship that? And that's. You know, that's where you know it wasn't one person, right? Like, this is just at some point, Q, somebody QA says, this isn't right. And the guy says, you're not qualified. Move it on. And just keep passing the buck along, people all turning a blind eye. And lo and behold, you now have millions of cars that tell lies. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Have, have you ever been put in a morally compromising position, either of you guys, where you were asked to write software you weren't comfortable writing? I'll tell a story if you will, Bob. Uh, well, you go first because I'm still racking my brain over that one. Oh, you like this one. This was an accident. I had no idea, but, you know, the, the moral implications came later. I was um, back in the early days of IBM PCs with the old uh, MFM hard drives. Sometimes when they got really, they would get cranky, and they were expensive, right? They're, you know, $1,000, 20-megabyte hard drives. Mm. I had a bulk eraser, a big electromagnet, mm-hmm. electrically switched one. And I found that you could bulk erase these drives and sometimes bring them back to life, right? Then you reformat them from scratch and so forth. And the, one of the guys I was, one of the companies I was working with saw this thing. He says, you tell me that if you hit that button for 10 seconds, that drive's completely blank? I'm like, yes. He says, I'd like to install it inside of my computer, please. <laughs> what? Pardon? He says, I'd like it to sitting over top of my drive so at any time I need to, I can hit the button and my drive will be blank. Oh, and you oh. raised the question. Now, why, exactly why would he want to be able to instantly erase his hard drive? Oh my! Why would anybody want to erase a bunch of stuff on their computer? <laughs> this is a this is about deleting your history in a whole different way. <laughs> well, guess what? What? My memory card filled up on my H six. Ah. So, is that why we heard you over the phone for the last few minutes? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. You know what? You need one of them big eraser buttons uh, sitting on your desk. <laughs> so, <laughs> You think I'd be more organized than this. You think after a couple of thousand podcasts, I'd have a clue. Or a bigger card, one or the other. Something like that. <laughs> I don't know. Just got to pay, pay a bit more. Apologies to everyone. You wonder what happened to my voice. That's what happened. That's all right. All and, right. I, and we, I, we decided not to throw all that good stuff away and start over. So exactly. My apologies. I actually have a story, but it's not about me. Oh, this was told to me by a guy uh, I used to work with, and I won't say who it was. He was, I think it was in the eighties asked to uh, hired by the Russian ministry of fisheries. <laughs> I remember Russian fishing trawlers as a euphemism. Oh yes. <laughs> to to develop software that would detect fish, fish. as they were swimming in the water so they would know where to go fishing. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Okay. Yeah. No, no, this fish too small. You need to look for really big fish. <laughs> big metal fish. <laughs> With funny tails. Yeah. So, Bob? You're up. So, yeah, I've been racking my brain over this. I, I believe that I have been fortunate in my career never to have been placed in a in a position where I had to make a significant moral decision about software. Interesting. That's not to say that I haven't had to make significant moral decisions about whether to ship defective software or yes. not, which, which I made in the wrong way several times in my youth yeah. and paid the price for it. But uh, the software itself, I've been lucky to work in, uh, in environments where I'm not... Uh, uh, there's no moral issues. But has anybody ever asked you to do something that it was just right away shot down? Uh, people have asked me to ship things that I knew I couldn't ship. Yeah. And then I would shoot that down. Um, yeah. And I learned that lesson the hard way several times. But uh, nobody's ever asked me to lie in the code the yeah. way the VW guys did. Or write something that does something illegal or unethical. No, I, I, no. I wonder nothing. how many nothing. listeners out there have can say they've been put in that situation. You know that, uh, and let's let's not make it something nefarious or illegal, but just something like like you said, Bob, asked to ship code when it's not ready, and they can you know sp spill the dominoes and see where it leads, and the end result isn't good. I think there's plenty of that. Yeah. If if my contact with developers is is any indication, most people have been put in that position more than once. Yeah, yeah. I think it, I th this is where you know, getting back to our previous conversation, which admittedly was more than a year ago. This is really about why we want a guild or a pro you know the real profession where we're beholden to a power larger than our customer. You know, it's not that I would lose my certification. You know, how do you get, how does the, the civil engineer refuse to use substandard concrete on the bridge? It's like, I'm actually beholden to this larger thing than just your project. Well, the thing is, Richard, we have certifications and you and I and Bob know what certifications are worth. Basically, anytime there's a certification, you know, people will just memorize a test or do whatever they need to get certified without actually being qualified to do what it says they can do. But those certifications have no teeth. Right, right. There's nothing you can do to, there's no body that can suddenly revoke them. And frankly, most people don't pay attention to them anyway. They're, yeah. they're a, a little checkbox that you can put on your resume that somebody might look at and go, huh. That's interesting, and then forget about it immediately. It's not the deciding factor on whether or not you get the job or the, the project or anything like that. It's also, there's nobody to sue. Yeah. So what we need is, is a body of some kind that, that has the ability to investigate and adjudicate and decide whether or not you can continue to be a programmer. Interesting. Right. <laughs> That's, we're a long ways away from that. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, when you talk about doctors and, and lawyers and that, that's what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah, exactly. I think people should have to pass a test in order to have children personally, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> did I mention the howling cat on my last flight? It's like, really? No. Yeah. No. A lady with a cat in a bag. A cat in a bag. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh, this is the new thing. Everybody's yes. bringing their pets on board airplanes because With- they... They've got some medical exemption that they've invented. Yeah, that's right. Basically, you can tell your doctor, I have anxiety, and the only thing that calms me down is my pet. So can you write a note to United Airlines saying, I can bring my dog or my cat? I actually know people who do this. And and they're firmly happy in knowing that they're taking advantage of the system. I'll tell you. So my son has, uh, has allergies, pretty bad allergies, especially where cats and dogs are concerned. And, you know, sitting in an airplane with yeah. all this pet hair floating around yeah. is almost as bad as sitting in an airplane with tobacco smoke floating around. It is. Sure. And, you know, Kelly, my wife, has that same problem. She actually found her. It was coming back from an MVP summit, Richard, from Seattle. She was like, why am I sneezing and, you know, puffy eyes and everything? And at the end of the flight, when people stood up, this woman reached under her seat and grabbed a little toy dog or something. Yeah. <laughs> And the reason is they don't want to spend the money to impound the dog. And, you know, the, the dog is uh, has become an inconvenience, so they have to take them on the plane. It, it makes their life easier. Yeah. <laughs> so go get that note from your doctor, kids. Just don't fly on my flight. <laughs> on, there was a, on the same flight, there was a Cocker Spaniel with a couple. Then Cocker Spaniel had service dog tags. He was wearing them. And I'll tell you this, perfectly behaved. Like, mm-hmm. you would not have known the dog was there unless you had allergies. Yeah. Oh, well. No. Totally off topic. Sorry, 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 sorry. Bob, I pinged you uh, a few weeks back to make this show about your blog post called The Churn. Yeah. Which I thought was an interesting, you know, turn of thinking on your part. So, please, let's let's dive into this. So, I was... um. I was in an airplane with my son. He's a pilot. Uh, and we were flying together to Phoenix. And uh, we're just sitting there chatting and looking at the landscape go by. And and we start talking about all the new languages and all the new frameworks and how frustrating it is that, that you know, every couple of years there's all this new stuff that you have to relearn. And there's not that much new value in <laughs> the stuff that you have to relearn. And that got me thinking about this. And, and it's a topic that I've, I've broached several times before. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I'm going to blog about this because I think it's a symptom now of, of something that is going sideways in our industry. So there was a time when every new language and every new framework brought something really new and revolutionary. Um, so you think of the difference between machine language to assembly language. That was just, you know, inordinately amazing. Incredible new things were, were done with assembly language versus binary. Sure. And then think of Fortran versus assembly language. And that was, that was, uh, you know, an order of magnitude improvement. And you think of C versus Fortran, another order of magnitude improvement. But now think about the difference between Ruby and Python. <laughs> yeah. It gets a little tougher. Um, uh, it's a little, t- yeah, a little tougher or, or frankly, Java and C++. Or, There's an improvement. There's an improvement or C sharp right. and C++. There's an improvement there. Yeah. But Java but and C sharp. But it's not an order of magnitude. Sure. Yeah. 
And then you think, okay, um, let's talk about Swift. I yeah. don't know if you guys know Swift, but this is this yeah, new, know you know, the Apple language, the iOS language. And yep. what new is being brought to the table by this language? Okay, it's very opinionated and it's extremely strongly typed. And I understand it's a reaction against Objective C, but it's really more a answer to C sharp on the Apple side, I think, and more modern languages. But you know, it makes developers' jobs perhaps easier once they learn it. But you're right. Does it actually do anything new? Is it is it new in any sense of the word? Is it is it offering some new capability or even some new idea? And the answer to that is no. There's no <laughs> new idea in there. There's no revolutionary concept. It does not it does not multiply the programmer's productivity by some significant factor. Uh, in fact, it may actually reduce productivity by some. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not quite sure which it is. Now, we did do a show with you in the past where you were talking about things like closure and, and functional languages as yes. having some benefits. Yes. And so the thing that intrigued me about closure was not that it was new. Right. But it, it's that it's, it's one of the oldest languages that's ever existed, right? Lisp goes back to 1957. And I, I found the closure revolution, the, the, the sudden popularity in closure, to be remarkably ironic. <laughs> yeah. Because it's this ancient language that is suddenly reasserting itself as something new. And, and there's very little new in it. Right. So, in some sense, we've come full circle we're we're now back in 1957 and and uh, suddenly excited about s forms and and uh, you know lispy like languages i did uh, have the thought or did appreciate the idea that one of the the reasons that functional languages surged is that we did kind of hit a point in object orientation where the hardware betrayed us that object orientation made a lot of sense in single core memory constrained machines because it was very memory efficient and it was very linearly executing and that functional, which lost out to object orientation back in the eighties because it wasn't as efficient with the heart limited hardware of the time is now making a surge because the hardware's changed and the natural tendencies of functional support utilizing this multi-core massive memory architecture. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable argument. There, there actually is a uh, a reason to to adopt functional programming. Right. And and functional programming is the kind of thing that most programmers ignored for uh, fifty years. Mm. Yes. And now all of a sudden there is this hardware reason why functional programming might be uh, the appropriate thing to to learn. It's not clear that it will be. But it might be because it does solve at least some part of the concurrency problem. Yes. Mm. Even there, we have plenty of functional languages um, without having to invent new ones. Right. And for the most part, we haven't, right? I mean, we've really just taken advantage of languages out there. And I'm not even going to poke terrible fun at F-sharp. It's just not that different from Haskell. Mm. Right. Right. And, and you know, I, all of... Uh, it, it appears to... <laughs> now uh, I'm tongue-tied. All right. So we have this momentum in our industry that's been built up, and it's this momentum of change. 
everyone expects the world to get reinvented every couple of years. And for a few decades, that was reasonable because the hardware was changing like crazy and our software knowledge was changing like crazy. But now that momentum is continuing without strong justification. And that's what I call the churn. Yeah. This churning change, which gives us little or no benefit. The big benefit is to the companies that are producing and keep in innovating these things that uh, keep you invested in either their brand or their technology or their products or services or whatever. Uh, I agree. And, uh, however, I do think that a lot of what you're seeing in this churning is – uh, an idea or a pattern or, you know, something as simple as data binding coming out of one technology group and going to another, right? So that there you see things like Angular and Knockout before that, you know, which are sort of things that were developed in the Windows desktop world. And then the, the binding sort of moved into the web world, right? So while it's not new, it's new to them. And I think of Swift as the same thing, you know, it's sort of, taking sort of modern language features that Objective-C programmers didn't have and giving it to them, you know. Uh, but it, but you're right. In the grand scheme of things, there isn't the rapid innovation that that was happening. I even heard uh, on NPR, I think, I can't remember where it was, but, you know, NPR is a source of all goodness. Um, <laughs> it was some show somewhere. People are basically saying, you know, the age of – productivity innovations is over and we had this long run of productivity boom you know and now all of that all this all the stuff we could possibly squeeze out of it is is been squeezed and now we're just getting little drips and drops i don't know if that's true on in the hardware yet although the hardware is clearly slowing down yes mm. Um, unless there's some major revolution on the quantum side, which I'm not really expecting. Not this week. <laughs> not this week. On the software side, I think that's probably very close to being true. We mm. really have squeezed this lemon and gotten all the drops out of it. And and our attitude should be shifting towards uh, consolidation. Yeah. You know, what What are the languages that work for us? Do we need a thousand of them? Could we get by with five or two or even one? I read a, um, a fascinating article several years ago that drew a parallel between the software industry and the airline industry huh. or, air, avia or uh, uh, aviation in general. And you think about the wild innovations that were going on from 1904 until 1970, roughly about the same time span that there has been software. Right. And that that period took us from the Wright brothers to a 747. Mm -hmm. But now you look up in the air 40 years later, and what you see in the air are 747s. Yeah, tubes yeah. with swept wings. Yeah, there's airplanes up there that are kind of new, but they still look like 747s. They still look like the normal aircraft. The The innovation in the shape of airplanes, the gross structure of airplanes, has not, not gone away completely, but it's gone way down. Mm. And the new innovation in, in aviation is all in the electronics and the automation. Yeah, it's in the onboard trivia. 
<laughs> and I'll tell you a story about why Richard's laughing in a minute. But first, Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. You got it. It's time to try and squeeze one more drop of humor out of this stupid mid-show joke thing. <laughs> I got nothing. All right, all right. I got nothing. Been a lemon for a long time. Sorry. Lemon's dry. <laughs> It's actually time to give away a Music to Code by complete collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Music to Code by, of course, is a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized quiet and groovy instrumentals scientifically designed to promote focus. Bob's laughing. Like, science and groovy in the same sentence. I love it. <laughs> and Pomodoro. <laughs> Uh, it'll get you into a state of flow and keep you there. And of course, .NET Rocks fans are being more productive with Music to Code by every day. Check it all out at musictocodeby.net. And now you can download the entire 13-track collection for only 39 bucks. Crazy talk. So musictocodeby.net. Know it, learn it, love it. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Timothy Donato. Oh, congratulations, Timothy. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Timothy. And uh, Timothy just won that complete collection. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December we give away $5,000 technology shopping spree <laughs> to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. I'm already seeing Christmas stuff, so it's like we need to start thinking about this already. I'm killing That's me. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Got to sign up there. Uncle Bob, it's been a while since we asked you this question. You had five grand to spend on technology. What would you buy? Oh, geez. Well, see, I'm about I'm this close to uh, getting my pilot's license. Neat. And when I do that, my next purchase will probably be some large uh, device that flies through the air. Yeah. And uh, dropping five grand into one of those is a pretty easy thing yeah. to do. There's <laughs> all kinds of really interesting avionics that you can buy for an airplane. So probably something like that. You can buy the windshield for five grand. Maybe <laughs> the, maybe the, the wheels. Later cigarette yeah. later. Nice. Yeah. I was thinking you'd have a great big Hollywood style uh, sign, you know, with light bulbs that spells "Get off my lawn." <laughs> <laughs> Dog on kids, always in languages. Welcome to three old guys try to talk, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Uh, so many airplane gadgets, but, uh, and I want to jump back to your analogy because, you know, there's two aspects in my mind of standardization. Yes, it's a very optimized design and that, which is fine. You know, when we speak about airlines, the, the tube with the wings and the engines and so forth, like that's a very refined design. And so part of your challenge there is you get some inertia around it's not perfect it's there's there's not a lot of improvements to be made in the current design but making a revolutionary jump you know compare the the gasoline engine to the electric engine they just set the bar so high it's very hard for someone to make a significant improvement on it and there's less and less incentive to do so yeah yes the, the guys at nasa have told me that they have uh much more revolutionary aircraft shapes that they could employ, but the uh, the risk is 
the risk to the market is uh, difficult. So sure. there's an impedance to that. Well, the um, you know, not that we would dare go down a rabbit hole talking to you, Bob, but I think yeah. of uh, Boeing <laughs> Sonic Cruiser. Which was, you know, point, be able to fly efficiently at Mach 9, 0.96. Uh, and they abandoned that for the 787 because it just didn't make the, the design was odd enough. The canard with the rear, with the back more wing. They just said people are not comfortable with this design. They don't like the look of it and they're not, not certain about it. Irrespective of it was more functional. Like it had a lot of good features, but nope, didn't build it. Stuck with a standard body style, just made out of carbon fiber. Yeah. So I mean, I do think this is the battle now is that we 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 shouldn't churn for churn's sake certainly. And I get that there's a whole ecosystem around taking advantage of the new thing. You know, it's not just the vendors, it's also the bloggers and the authors and, and you know the the video makers, the podcasters. New things are useful for us. The question is are they actually valuable? But I do think innovation going forward, you know, you're going to have to jump a very high bar. We're awfully productive right now. Mm. We we are awfully productive, uh, regardless of what people talk about a software crisis. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I believe that we have uh, approached an asymptote in software productivity, which uh, I think folks are going to have a hard time dealing with because everybody is always looking for the thing that's going to multiply their productivity by another factor of five. Now, there's another... I think they're going to have a hard time spelling asymptote, but okay. <laughs> it's an, uh, an ass that you tote along with you. There's another side to this whole argument, um, which is while we are busy churning, while we are busy investing time in learning things that provide no value, there are other things that we could be learning that do have value right. that we are not learning because we're busy churning. Yes. Mm. And that's things like uh, the basics of software technology. Uh, how many programmers today understand the basics of information hiding sure. or understand the basics of uh, structured systems analysis and design? How many software developers today could write a, a quick sort on a moment's notice? How many, how many of us are so busy churning that we don't dive into the depths of our own industry and learn it thoroughly? I mean, I would bat, I could argue with you about how much well used your time is learning to write a fast quick sort when you could probably, you know, as soon as I stop worrying about the next framework, the next programming language, so forth. And I look through my entire development cycle and say, what could we actually make better, make a big difference. I fall on stuff like testing, you know, yeah. could, can, sure. we, can we get better at that? Cause I think we can, sure. we yeah. can get better at testing <laughs> practice, not writing bugs. There That's you go. a good idea. Well, and, and to to your point, Bob, right, like getting deeper into the fundamentals of your language and so forth is about writing better quality code. But I, I just, you know, I fall firmly in the DevOps camp these days where I'm like, pull your head out of the code and look at everything else that's involved in actually making your code valuable to your customer. Because yeah. I suspect we're over-optimized in some areas and way under-optimized in others. Absolutely. 
uh, and and take it beyond the DevOps, how many programmers understand the business that they are writing code for? Right. That's my how many- favorite question as a consultant. How does this company make money? Do you know? Because I bet it's not you. I'm just betting. We look for so- big fish. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's somewhat the cure to the big fish issue, right? If you if you really have a broad enough view and can look at it and say, wait a minute, he's not talking about fish. Yes. Yeah, right. Um, what exactly so are you lo- long ago, I worked for a company and we um, we built systems that tested telephone lines. And it was a big software project and we were doing lots of assembly language in 8080s and PDP-8s and that kind of thing. And one of the rules at this company was that in order to be a programmer or an engineer in the hardware, you had to spend a couple of weeks um, every so often riding around in a truck with a telephone repairman. Love it. Great. That's yeah, awesome. Just so that you understood, you know, what these guys yeah. were dealing with. And it just, it just changed your whole perspective. Yeah. And we did this as strangely. We sent the dev, uh, one dev a quarter out with the system engineers to just figure out, to experience what it was like to install our product, configure it for a customer and, and, and have their asses handed to them. Yep. You know, like just, this is the reality of what we're actually doing. That's a way of motivating one, doesn't it? When you see a customer like <laughs> irately trying to figure out your user interface yeah. and swearing at you. Yes. It's powerful. The, uh, the incoming Watts lines at this company, which customers would call on uh, when they ever had, they had a problem, uh, were expected to be answered by the engineers. Yeah. So you're an engineer and it's your turn to answer the, the Watts lines calls. You're talking to customers uh, and dealing with their problems uh, in real time. That was a, um, a remarkable experience for me. I was in my 20s at the time. We did that when I was in my 20s. We did that at Crescent Software. We were writing developer tools, uh, assembly language tools for, you know, the, it was the precursor to your Telerix and uh, developer expresses and all that. But we were answering the phone as well, yeah. and all of them. And we just took turns. And we had, you know, blackout times for each one of us. And we just took turns. All right, for the next three hours, I'm head down. I'm not answering the phone. And uh, we just picked each other's slack up. But it was that was great. But you get to know far more the reality of our business. I mean, oh, I also yeah. appreciate the idea that a grown-up industry has specialization too. Sure, sure. Like it does make you know, just like you have your concrete guys and you have your plumbing guys and you have your electrical guys. There's reason to have different specialties. But I I do buy into this idea that you never lose sight of what the actual value proposition is. You would hope that a a doctor who has specialized so deeply in some weird, you know, field uh, like urology, just to pick one, okay, um, um, would be able to address a small wound. Would yes. be able to apply basic first aid. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd kind of hope that they would know enough about their their the broad part of their their discipline that the focus of their specialty did not completely eliminate all of their ability to d- to deal with things on a regular basis or Dennis just bob pick- i'm a urologist i don't care that his heart stopped <laughs> <laughs> or just to pick another one you would think that a diabetic medical professional 
would be interested in nutrition. (laughs) (laughs) Not to be too on the point. Ask me how I know. How do you know? (laughs) That's a whole nother story. Yeah, yeah. They're clueless. Interesting. So, yeah, they, when we think about the profession as a whole here, there's this, we do have to have a base level of knowledge and a set of competence around what's actually important, what we do, and then also a specialty. You don't get to specialize in ignorance. Right. Oh, that's a great t-shirt. I specialize in ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> Write that one down. That's, what's your title, sir? Ignorance nice. specialist. Do you know the other angle that would be interesting that I, I could see on the churn is, I've seen this done where it's the excuse for a rewrite. I don't want to write anything new. I just want to write the old thing again because I understand it. But in this new set of tools, and don't worry, it'll be better. And you'll leave me alone for three months. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I'll do something I actually understand. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, right. We cater to a grand rewrite, which, which. Industries are forced into doing because languages get old. Programmers stop programming in them because they want the newer language. You can't find programmers for the old language right. anymore. So you have to rewrite into the new language, even though you're getting almost no benefit out of it. Well, yeah, and that, therein lies the challenge. I did recently do a consulting gig with a company where all the COBOL programmers want to retire. And no amount of additional money will keep them staying. And they just want these kids to get these services rewritten in .NET so that they can shut this old thing off and go home. Wow. And those guys don't want to write COBOL, which I cannot blame them for, yeah, frankly. True. Having been a COBOL programmer once in my life, it is not something I want to return to. But there well, was also know- some other benefits, right? They really do want to turn off that Hitachi skyline. It costs a lot of money. But not only that, you know, there is a benefit to writing through a rewrite in a language where, you know, that's more popular. And that is yes. if something breaks, it can be fixed. Yeah. Yes. And that's the real problem with these old things. You know, and, we want to, you know, the, the old languages really were inferior. You, you right. compare COBOL to Java. Mm. And or to .NET or to Python or Ruby, and it's clearly inferior. There's a whole bunch of things it cannot do. Right. But I don't think we're going to see that again. I don't think we're going to see this next language that is so much better than the others that it's worthwhile doing the rewrite. It's going to have to read my mind. Well, and by the way, um, you know, NASA's looking for some people who want to program in Fortran. Because the Voyager spacecraft, uh, there's one guy left. Wow. (laughs) I think we actually advertised that uh, on the show. Oh, did you? When they were looking for it. Yeah, we called it out and said, all right, guys, get on your Fortran chops and go work for NASA. That's it. One guy. One guy. Yeah. I just want one Fortran programmer. That's all I ask. (laughs) Where are these people? (laughs) Where did they go? Uh, but and your task is to write code that yeah. will be downloaded into a device that's many light hours away. And if you get anything wrong, uh, it will destroy the entire thing. And uh, with no way to fix it. Oh, uh, yeah. where's my real-time debugger? Yeah, there you go. I want to you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not programming Fortran without a telesense. That's all there is to that. <laughs> Apparently, it can be done. Isn't there a, a Fortran that works on the framework? I don't know. Yep. 
I thought there was. There's a Fortran.net. Should there be a Fortran.net? I'm going to uh, search on Fortran.net. <laughs> I think there is. It's going to make me sad. I already know right now I'm going to be sad when I find this. Yeah, uh, it is. Well, the domains for Fortran for code. Microsoft.net code project from 2001. Is oh, that the code project. Oh, oh, oh. Yep. Oh, my. That's old. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Not older than Fortran, though. Nope. <laughs> That's funny. Bob, do we have any solutions here, or are we just saying, get off my lawn? Um, yeah, mostly it's get off my lawn. <laughs> I, you know, the solution... The solution is something that other industries have faced. Yes. Um, so mathematics used to have lots of different notations for calculus and other operations. And we managed to spin that down to pretty much one notation. Think of the difference between uh, our Arabic notation and Roman numerals, for sure. example. Yeah. Um, chemistry. Uh, the, the tons of different notations and, and ways to define the elements and the relationships between the elements. And although there are still plenty of notations, they've pretty well standardized on a lot of that. Yeah, but then again... Uh, electronics had the same thing with lots of different widgets. And most major industries face this this uh, catastrophe of expressive notations. And then they reduce those notations down to a workable set. Our, we haven't done that. Our yet. problem is we're based on products that other companies and whatever is invested in. In chemistry, a Bunsen burner is a Bunsen burner, right? I mean, I don't see chemists going out to bars for a beer and saying, oh, you ought to check out the Bunsen burner in my lab. You know, it's a, it's a, you don't hang with chemists often, do you? <laughs> it's a BBF2-1000. <laughs> Oh, I got the 500 from last year. Oh, this is so much better. Did they really do that? I don't know. I bet they do, though. I bet they do. Yeah, I bet oh they do. Oh, my God. They're, they're excited yeah. about their hardware just as much as we're excited about ours. But I also feel like this is an element of the maturation of our industry, that the hardware is finally getting mature. I would argue in between jumping from what we've got right now to quantum – and I did, when we did our Moore's Law show, I talked about this. One of the downsides to the rate of the iteration of the hardware has been, we just haven't fixed the internal architecture of the computer very much. You know, throwing away the x86 kernel and starting to redesign based on modern manufacturing techniques for computers, we could make a much better silicon-based computer. And the abstractions we have over language today means we could probably hide a lot of that change from most developers. Okay, that's still not going to put us back on the exponential growth curve. No, they, that's over. We're grown up now. That's yeah. cool. I think mm -hmm. we agree. And it's a good thing. Yeah, I think so. But but I think the it's a cautionary tale this whole hour it has been just because there's the new and shiny doesn't mean you should invest a lot of your time and effort in that. Um, rather, go back and learn some fundamentals. Well, that's certainly a lesson that I would promote. Um, although, frankly, the way things are right now, if you don't continue to learn the news in China, you're going to get left out. So if you're a software developer and something new and shiny comes along, you kind of have to learn it, which is unfortunate. A lot of time gets spent in that relearning that probably didn't need to get spent. Right. And it's holding us back from working on more important things. I think so. Well, I'm not going to argue with you, Bob. Well, yeah. I already did. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's leave it there. But before we go, Richard, you want to tell that trivial 
trivia story? Oh, no. No? But we were just first working together. I think it was one of the first times we did a conference together. And I flew out and hung out with you for a couple of days in, in yeah. Connecticut. And then we flew down, to, I think it was to Orlando. Yeah, it was Orlando. And we were on a Delta flight. And they had the new song. screen systems. Yeah, song that had this trivia system in it. And, and Carl's like, hey, Rich, you probably put it good at this. Why don't you play trivia on the plane? So I'm like, just to clarify, the trivia game was you play against everybody else on the plane, right? On the plane. And it was a full <laughs> flight. And I said, Richard, you want to play trivia? He goes, no. And I said, really? Why not? He goes, let me tell you a story. <laughs> yeah. So my, I have on more than one ca- occasion on the first round of Trivial Pursuit answered enough questions to finish the game in a row. Yeah. And it's just, that's no fun for anybody. I'm not going to fake I don't know the answer to the question. And I don't want to play Trivial Pursuit. I really don't. So but then he actually did play on he the. Bu- he bullied me into it. On the flight. And. You know, you see people popping their head up and, you know, looking around like, what? Who's this Richard guy? <laughs> like, he would come up, there would be some question about Italian fashion. And he would have it in four seconds. How do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I don't, I don't fly on Delta anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Sir, you're going to have to leave. <laughs> you're annoying the other passengers. It's like wasn't me. He made me. Did they put your slump in the answers? I mean, were, were people able to say, oh, it's that guy over there in 2A? No, nobody bothered him, but it was just uh, it was just quite amazing to see. Bob, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks and this for having me. Always fun. Fantastic. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a